This special edition of Behind the Idea features Whitney Tilson, the founder of Case Learning and the former manager of Case Capital, a hedge fund. He talked about how being right on the 2008 housing bubble may have kept him from figuring out the subsequent stock market bull run. You know, 2008, 2000, early 09 was a dream for me and, and people who practice investing like me. But maybe it was also so scarring that I kept seeing another uh, big calamity right around the corner. So I was playing defense during a period of time when, when I should have been playing offense. Then he talked about what that bull run's effect might be on investors who are thinking about starting a hedge fund now and how he knows from experience. We're in a world of bull market geniuses, um, young people who didn't let, live through 08 and 09. The only thing they know is that every every stupid stock they bought's gone up, and they've been rewarded for absolutely reckless and idiotic behavior. And you know why I know this? Because not only am I observing it in my students and reading the paper, but I was one of these guys in 1996, 97, 98. Uh, Right before I started my fund, I was it was the tail end of a 17-year bull market that had started in 1982. Mike conducted this interview with Whitney on November 6th. I didn't take part in the interview, but I really enjoyed listening to it. I think there's a lot to take away from this if you're interested in investing or in the hedge fund game. Quickly for the disclosures, Whitney is long Facebook, Berkshire, Alphabet, and Amazon. Mike is along the PSQ, which is a short NASDAQ ETF. So without further ado, enjoy this interview with Whitney Tilson. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the Seeking Alpha podcast where we explore investment analysis. I'm Mike Taylor, and with me today is Whitney Tilson, a longtime Seeking Alpha contributor and the founder of Case Capital which he closed in 2017. Now he runs Case Learning, which he also founded, and Case Learning hosts investor education seminars and conferences. So Whitney, I'm very excited to have you on. I feel like you're a great friend and longtime contributor to Seeking Alpha, and uh, I'm excited to talk. So welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to start just with how you're career transition is going. Has joy returned to your life since you left Case Capital and started this new venture? Yes. I wouldn't call it unmitigated joy. Um, it's been uh, you know, the past year of building a new business. There's been a lot of uh, stress as well. We're developing just great content. I love to teach. Uh, I'm back doing it with my old partner in the hedge fund business, Glenn Tung. We're, you know, the teaching and mentoring part is an A plus. Uh, we're getting incredible feedback from the students, uh, teaching them the the things that we wish we had known, you know, when we were uh, earlier in our careers, trying to, you know, build a build a hedge fund business and uh, and become better investors. Uh, the frustrating part of it has just been, you know, all the other stuff, uh, in particular the marketing. And, you know, trying to figure out the, the right pricing levels and do we do in-person versus webinars? Do we take it on the road? Uh, we've been we've done some teaching in London, in Singapore, in Shanghai, in Hong Kong. And we've, we also now teach via webinars as well, where people just this morning as part of a 15 session webinar. We're doing every weekday morning for three weeks for two and a half hours 
where we're teaching the same content that we teach over five days in person. We instead spread out over 15 two and a half hour sessions via webinar, teach all three of our programs. And uh, it's, it's very cool technology. It's at a much lower price point. And, and so that's working well. But so there are just a lot of sort of the, the business aspects of it have been um, just more sort of brain damage. Uh, what I really like to do is teach and mentor. Uh-huh. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. As I was reading that, you know, you're sort of potentially looking for a little bit quieter, lower stress job transition. And then I see that you've founded an entirely new venture. I was wondering, you know, is it sort of a different type of pressure that you feel starting a new business versus investment management? Or how would you contrast the sort of day-to-day stress level? They both seem difficult to me. So maybe they Yeah, I mean, I guess um, one of them is, uh, you know, when I was managing money, anytime you're managing anybody else's money, there's a level of stress that if you're going through any kind of poor performance, that you feel like you're letting your investors down, that there's someone looking over your shoulder. And that was, uh, you know, I went through a period of sort of chronically trailing this long bull market for, you know, since 2009, by and large, because I was playing defense at a time in a long, complacent bull market. So over time, it, it, it just felt like I was out of step with the market. My investors were saying, you know, gee, I, 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 my index fund is doing better than you. Even when I was making them money, I wasn't keeping up with the market usually. And because I had cash, because I had a short book, because I was running my value investing, uh, playing defense playbook in a complacent bull market, but that turned out to be exactly the wrong thing to do. And so it over time, it just built up and built up my, my own feelings of letting my investors down. My investors were almost entirely amazing and, and were patient and were not uh, berating me with, uh, with emails and angry phone calls or anything like that. Uh, but I felt like I was letting them down. So it's different. You know, the challenges I face building case learning are our internal challenges. Uh, the, our customers are, are thrilled. Uh, we're delivering, we're, we're teaching stuff that nobody else in the world is teaching. You know, very high level, what we call lessons from the trenches. You know, the, 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 the real investing lessons that we learned over, you know, 20 years of doing this professionally. So in, in that sense, it's a lot less stressful. I feel like we're delivering a great product and a great service and really helping young investors learn lessons uh, through our hard experience rather than through their own hard experience, which is by and large the way I had to learn. Much, much better, of course, to learn from, from other people's hard experience so that you can learn from their successes, but also avoid uh, and, and, and build on their successes, but avoid their mistakes, right? So to the extent that I feel pressure with my with my current business, it, it's much less pressure because I don't feel like I'm letting anybody down. Yeah, your customers are happier. That must be just uh, easier on on your own mind. Yeah, yeah, it's very uh, it's very psychically rewarding. And you know, the question is is just how to how to you know a, attract more customers. It's more of a marketing challenge. Right. I wanted to get into this question of marketing because I think there's a kind of purist argument about investment management and the role of marketing in the investment industry. 
I think it's a little bit of a sort of tacit element that there's this purist argument that you should kind of, if you're a portfolio manager, you should be locked away in a closet somewhere with your intelligence and a bunch of SEC filings. And you really marketing or investor relations should be at most a secondary consideration. And I think with case learning, you know, marketing and communications with your students and clients, obviously a really important component of what you do and you have your newsletter. So how do you think about this kind of continuum between sort of communicating with the outside world and this sort of pure vision of these companies like Renaissance technologies where they really don't talk to anyone and they just deliver these amazing returns. What's your approach to that? How do you, what do you think about that kind of purist vision of portfolio management? Yeah. um, I think there are two very, very different elements of being, of the investment industry. One is the investment process and, and it's really a multi, it's multi, it's a multi-step process. It starts with developing a strategy and figuring out what your edge is. And that's, that's what I, that's where we start with teaching our students is, is you got to figure out a strategy. Um, and it should be somehow rooted in something where you have an edge. Uh, so as an example, I was just reading the investment letter of a, of a small hedge fund uh, that nobody's ever heard of, but it's two guys. And they're based out in Salt Lake City. And for 20 years, they've done nothing but invest in publicly traded U.S. banks with a billion dollar market cap or less. And they are the world experts in that area. Uh, They invest long and short. And so they have a very well articulated, uh, clear strategy in a niche where they have a tremendous edge because it's these are generally banks off the radar screen. There are a lot of banks that fall into that category. Um, there's some people who specialize in, um, you know, who are from India uh, or Brazil, uh, and they um, they invest in small and mid cap companies that are generally not the ones owned by all the big index funds and in- international investors, companies that report their earnings only in um, in the local language, um, uh, and and where they can develop a real edge there. So. Um, developing a strategy, just figuring out, are you going to be an equity investor? Are you going to do, you know, are you going to invest around the capital structure? Are you investing in small caps, mid caps, large caps? Are you going to short sell? Uh, what's, uh, are you going to be a 10 stock long only fund? Are you going to be 40 long stocks, uh, long 40 stocks, short 20 stocks? Those are all the questions starting. That's sort of all around building a strategy and then being able to clearly articulate your edge. Then, then there is the process. Okay. Once you've got that nailed down, you've got the process that everybody thinks about, which is just good stock picking, right? Good research, in-depth research, et cetera. Then there's an element though, a third element that again, I did not at all appreciate uh, when I, in my early days, which is portfolio management, which is once you've done good research and you've identified a great stock, um, do you make it a 3% position, a 7% position, a 10% position, a 20% position? Um, how many stocks are you going to own? Because, um, you know, smart people can always find uh, a bunch of stocks. Uh, are you going to limit yourself to 10? You're going to own 20? You're going to own 30? Um, and so are you going to build a portfolio? Like my portfolio management was generally I had maybe three or four 8 to 10% positions. 
I had a half dozen five to six percent positions, and then I had a few more special situations, mispriced options, you know, down in the two to three percent position range, right? And that would generally add up to maybe 15 stocks and 100% long exposure. That was what my long book looked like, right? So that's an element, that's a critical element of portfolio management is how many stocks and position sizing, but also how often your, what your turnover is and, and how do you manage a stock that runs against you? Do you buy more? Do you trim? Do you sell? Do you just hold? Uh, what happens when do you start trimming a stock that's working and running up? That's a high class problem. But managing a portfolio and having good portfolio management skills um, is as important as stock picking over a long period of time. And I have seen more people blow themselves up from bad portfolio management than I have from bad stock picking. Or usually it's a combination of the two. In other words, somebody falls in love with a particular stock, and but they're wrong on it. They've just done bad research. They failed to identify things. And that's a problem. But everybody makes mistakes. Where people blow themselves up is they make it a 20% position, not a 5% position. You can withstand being wrong on a 5% position. You are out of business often if you're wrong on a 20% position. And then here's when where people really blow themselves up is they make it a 20% position when the stock's at $40. And then the stock, um, it turns out they're wrong. So bad things are happening. The stock is crashing and they invest more and more as it goes down. Mathematically, if you double down every time the stock gets cut in half, mathematically at zero, you've put 100% of your capital into a stock that went to zero, right? If, if you keep doing that. So, so that, all of that, then is the uh, relates to being a good investor okay those three major steps okay then your question asks well what about the other part about building a business um and i would argue that 90 to 95% of investors should stop at those first three steps the step to then become an entrepreneur and open up your own fund and manage other people's money through your own business is a completely different skill set than those first three things of the key elements of being a good investor. And so I've always been an entrepreneur and wanted to work independently. So that was the right answer for me, though I should not have run out and started my own fund, having never worked a day in the industry. The, the real successful entrepreneurs are the people who work for somebody else for at least two or three years, ideally five to 10 years, learning all of the entrepreneurial skills and investing skills before they go out and hang out their own shingle. But by the way, my point though is, is that 90 to 95% of people are not cut out to be entrepreneurs and they should, they should, the question that you asked about, you know, the tension between being investor versus raising money 90% of people should never try and go out and raise money. They should build a successful career working in the money management industry at a larger firm that has an infrastructure, that has a senior person who and a team who have the entrepreneurial skills. They're the ones who can raise the money, who can deal with compliance, who can negotiate the lease. Um, who can determine what fees to charge, et cetera. 
And the people who are super skilled at investing should just stick to that, right? So it's the pretty rare person who has both the skill set to be a really good investor, which is often a sort of a type B personality, somebody who can just sit there in the library or in a quiet room for days or weeks on end, just reading annual reports and doing research and, and trying to come up with a very small number of good investment ideas a year. That skill set is often is completely different than more the type A personality of the person who is willing to take risks and put up capital and uh, needs to be able to hire people and manage and motivate them, negotiate, um, and then be a salesperson and go out and raise money and manage uh, investors. And by the way, be a good writer um, and be able to write good investor letters and just have meeting after meeting and get rejection after rejection, have that uh, uh, thick skin to be able to deal with rejection. That's that's just completely different skill set than what's required to, to be a successful investor. So, so um, that said, we teach both of these. And in fact, we have two different programs. We have a Lessons from the Trenches Value Investing Bootcamp focused entirely on that, those first set of questions and teaching all of those skills from developing a strategy to being a good stock picker, to being a good portfolio manager. And it relates to, we have a whole piece on behavioral finance and investor irrationality, the emotional side of investing. And then we have a separate shorter program called How to Launch and Build an Investment Fund that we're actually starting this Friday via webinar. Uh, we're, We're teaching the Lessons from the Trenches Bootcamp right now over nine sessions. Then we have three two and a half hour sessions on how to launch and build an investment fund that then assumes that you have the investing skill set and you now have the dream of starting your own fund. Let's talk about all the nitty gritty legal stuff, finding a prime broker, finding an auditor, putting together a good uh, investor pitch deck, writing good investor letters, the entire sales process about getting people to trust you with their money, you know, that kind of thing. And then we have the, the last module that we teach is an advanced seminar on short selling for people who want to do a deep dive into short selling. So it's a great question. Sorry, sorry for the super long answer, but you can see this is something I'm really passionate about because, you know, I love teaching it, but also I didn't fully appreciate all of these things when I was a young investor. Right. Do you have any regrets about your own career? You mentioned that it's better to you know, learn a little bit first for a couple of years and you sounds like you just dove right in. I did. Uh, do you? Do you wish that that had gone differently for yourself? Yes, um, I had. I, I dove right in. I learned fast. I got lucky. It was a great time for this style of value investing from 1999, you know, through 2009 to 2010. I nailed the internet bubble, nailed the housing bubble, and you know, started with a million dollars out of my bedroom. With never worked a day in the industry, and I was one of the incredibly rare people who who was, you know, with that starting from basically zero, was able to build an extremely successful business. Uh, We tripled in the first dozen years. Our returns were uh, nearly a triple on our investors' money in a flat S&P 500. Assets grew from a million to 200 million. We had a couple mutual funds. We had three hedge funds, a conference business, a newsletter business. I was on CNBC Weekly, was one of the best known investors in the world, you know, uh, you know, certainly in the top dozen or two. 
and was delivering, most importantly, delivering great returns to my investors, uh, et cetera, and then um, completely got this long bull market wrong. At, at every point, uh, maybe 2008 was so scarring. I sort of look back and I was like, Whitney, how did you miss this incredible bull market? And maybe it was, you know, partly it's just been a pretty unfavorable period for value investors who look for dislocations and and market inefficiencies and blood in the streets and other investors panicking. You know, 2008, 2000, early 09 was a dream for me and, and people who practice investing like me. But maybe it was also so scarring that I kept seeing another uh, big calamity right around the corner. So I was playing defense during a period of time when when I should have been playing offense. Um, and so I managed to uh, underperform the market after outperforming the market by a wide margin for the first dozen years. You know, my last seven years or so, I chronically underperformed the market. And I got fatigued. My investors got fatigued. Assets shrank. You know, I was at about $50 million uh, about a year ago. And I was just sort of, I felt like I'd lost my mojo. I felt like I was letting my investors down. And, uh, and I didn't love my portfolio. That was really the final straw. It's one thing to be underperforming, but to know that you're going to make it back. And, and there have been times in the past when I'd underperformed, but I knew that every stock I own was super cheap and that I was going to make that the, the, the recent losses back. And I did not feel that a year ago. I felt like my safe stocks were not cheap and my cheap stocks were not safe. And so I just didn't feel like I was doing right by my investors to continue to manage their money. If one, uh, at that point last year, I was losing money in an up year, that's particularly hard. It's one thing to be up. It's one thing to be up 4% in a plus 12 market, which is what I did in 2016, right? I'll hang around the hoop and wait for better days. If, if, uh, you know, if I'm playing defense and a very conservative 4% when the S and P is up 12, you know, I'm disappointed in that performance, but that's okay. I'll, I'll stick around for another year. Uh, in 2017, my short book was killing me. My long book wasn't working. So I was sort of in a 9%, 8 or 9% hole in a plus <clears throat> 15 market. And, you know, that was um, causing real, uh, causing me to be truly miserable. So, you know, I look back and, you know, and I had an incredible business after 12 years and I managed to screw it up and basically lose it over the last seven years of the 18 and three quarter years that I was managing money professionally. And I look back and so I look back at the investing mistakes, but I think, you know, quite a few of the mistakes I made were due to not having worked in the industry before. And I didn't, I didn't pay my dues. I didn't accumulate the experience and knowledge that you can only learn from being in the industry. And I was accumulating that knowledge by being in the industry. But unfortunately, I was out there making a lot of mistakes and selling certain stocks too quickly, uh, got into some value traps, let this sort of macro view that the market was ahead of itself and therefore, you know, be, be playing defense to an extreme degree during, uh, you know, what obviously seems obvious now that it was a real bull market we were in for the past decade. Um, so, you know, uh, I made a combination of investing and business mistakes that I don't think I would have made if I had had um, if I had gone and uh, worked for somebody in the industry, worked for a larger fund, bided my time, and um, and uh, and that's what I tell all of my all of my students who are considering getting into this business, which is um, 
you know, go go do this the right way. Um, you're off to a good start by coming and learning from Glenn and me through our programs, but that's only you know a thimble in the ocean of of what you need to learn. Um, and that there's just no substitute for going and getting yourself a job, working for somebody smart, working at a good fund, and learning everything about both investing and the entrepreneurship side of building a successful fund before you go out there and try and do it yourself. Great. There are a bunch of different things that sort of stem out of your answer there. One that a couple of my friends in the business are interested in is your perspective on sort of concentrated, long, short value uh, security analysis approach to investing. A lot of really prominent people, you know, including you and David Einhorn and some of Bill Ackman, some other people have really struggled lately. And I'm sure they, you know, are going through a lot of the same things that you went through with underperformance and the responsibility to their investors. Do you, do you question the validity of the strategy, especially as, you know, you trailed the market for a long period of time, missed the 2008 bull market? What do you have to say about this particular approach of sort of fundamentals driven value investing? Yeah, that's the that's the big question a, a lot of uh, value investors are asking themselves. The old playbook um, doesn't seem to be working the way it used to. We had there was just such a tailwind in the late 90s and through the 2000s. Hedge funds were hot. A lot of money was coming in. And I'm sure to some extent, some of the performance was money coming into hedge funds and hedge funds ended up in some of the same stocks and we boosted each other's stocks up. Maybe that was part of it. But during the long, complacent bull market that's increasingly dominated by index funds, one, and quant funds, two. And I and it's hard for me to put my finger on the impact of the quant funds, but I think they've gotten, I think the supercomputers have gotten a lot smarter and they're running the value investing playbook and beating down stocks. Like I remember early in my career, you know, when McDonald's, one of the most, you know, one of the greatest companies of all time, the stock went down from 45 to 12 amidst uh, poor management, declining same-store sales for the better part of two years. And it was just crazy cheap at the bottom. And of course, the stock's up 15x in the 15 years since then. Um, and I caught you know a big ride for about six years on that. And these days, you know, uh, when Experian ha uh, reports a huge data breach and all, you know, the stock drops by 25%. And I go in there look for, looking for something cheap. And the stock's gone from 35 times earnings to 25 times earnings. Uh, it's just not cheap. So it's, um, you know, it's just, uh, uh, and I, I don't know whether it's active money managers who are who are coming in and just willing to accept lower returns and therefore the stocks don't get as cheap as, as, they, as I was uh, accustomed to at one time. So I'm left there just, you know, sucking my thumb and, and sitting in cash uh, instead of putting it to work in truly cheap, beaten down situations or whether the quant funds are stepping in and figuring out uh, value situations. But regardless, it's a, it's a tougher market out there. And during periods of, you know, for people who rely on other investors to make mistakes and panic and sell things, be willing to sell stocks at prices far below intrinsic value, when you're in a long, complacent bull market, uh, there just isn't a lot of panic out there. And so 
it's it just makes it harder. Now, I don't think human behavior has changed. I, I think human beings are still looking to get rich quick and they uh, they are programming their computers that way. So my strategy going forward, if I were ever to relaunch again, and, and it might not even be through a hedge fund structure, I might do it through a separately managed account structure, would be focused, uh, it would be long only, and it would be 10 stocks max. And I would estimate average holding period of five years. In other words, I would spend all of my time trying to find two incredible investment situations a year and rotate out two of my 10 stocks every year. That would be my objective. But I think so the only way to compete in this world, I think, is to have to extend your time horizon because even the quant funds and the uh, and all are looking for short term, you know, short term catalysts, etc. So you've got to extend your time horizon, look further out, and uh, I think com- um, I think computers have difficulty predicting multiple years out. I think that's where you can gain an advantage and find companies that just have exceptional competitive advantages. And so I'll give an example today of something I like a lot, Facebook. Uh, you know, it's not a back up the truck kind of position. It's still a tech stock. Um, there are a wide range of outcomes here. But basically it has, Facebook and Google have the two best business models of any companies I've ever seen in the history of business. They have these incredibly light business models that can scale to serve every human being on earth. And they don't need any inventory. They don't need any warehouses. You know, their customers are providing for free all of the content. And and so they have just astronomical profit margins and business characteristics. And both of those stocks are trading net of cash at pretty close to a market multiple. And so I think there's just sort of near term noise. Facebook is viewed as dead money in the short term. There's no immediate catalyst. The company is taking guidance down for the next 12 to 18 months, let's say. And so I think investors, you know, short-term focused investors don't want to own the stock. But I think if you look out three to five years and you look at where revenues and cash flows are likely to be uh, in three to five years, not just with Facebook's core business, but then you throw in Instagram and WhatsApp, which I think they're just starting to monetize. Those are two incredible franchises. I think you pretty easily can see Facebook's earnings are double, at least double today's levels in three years, could be quadruple in five years. And given that the stock is sort of trading at its lowest multiples ever, you know, at roughly a market multiple for a far superior to the average business in the S&P 500 quality, uh, I think if anything, you know, you know, if you think about where a stock is going to be in, in the future, it's super simple. What are its earnings and what's the multiple that the market places on those earnings? If you really think about it, all of investing boils down to just those two questions. And then the earnings are in turn a function of the revenues and the margins, right? And so again, it's investing and, and making future predictions is very simple in concept. You just have to think sensibly about a few key variables I think the, the, the few key variables about Facebook are all likely to be quite a bit better in three to five years than they are today. And that yields a stock that could be two to four times higher. But you've got to be willing to ignore the short-term noise and not care at all where the stock is in the next 12 months in order to practice this kind of investing. Got it. Interesting. Okay. 
I want, I'll, maybe we'll come back to sort of the portfolio management aspect of the discussion. Uh, I'm also interested kind of looking at case learning and your students and the conversations you have with them. I was really interested in seeing that, you know, you don't necessarily encourage all of your students to pursue starting a hedge fund business. And I don't know, I would infer from that, that maybe even entering the investment management industry. And I was wondering how those conversations kind of go. Are people disappointed? Are they receptive to your arguments? Or how do those conversations go where you say, you know, maybe this isn't quite for you? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, the investment management industry is a fantastic industry. And for people who are genuinely interested in business and, and investing, it's a it's the it's the world's greatest industry in many ways. It has incredible economic yeah. yeah, it has incredible economic characteristics and it's just intellectually fascinating. Um, and there's so many interesting twists and turns and I just love it. So I, uh, I never deter people who have a genuine interest in, uh, in, in, in companies and business from pursuing a career in investment management. But the point is, is if you think about all the people in the investment management industry in the world, I don't know the numbers, but I would guess that at least 90, probably 95, you could even argue 99% of the people in the investment management industry are not running their own funds, right? They work at Fidelity. They work at T. Rowe Price. They work for the Harvard Endowment. Uh, you know, they work at uh, they work for Bill Ackman or David Einhorn or, or you know, one of the big funds, right? So, in other words, there's, there's there appears to be a lot of confusion among young people that about okay, well, if I'm if I'm if I love investing, then of course I'm going to start my own fund, and that's not necessarily true at all. The vast majority of people don't start their own funds, nor should they. They don't have the skill set. It's a very crowded marketplace. The vast majority of funds fail, it's, so it's very risky, and you can really do damage to your career by running out and starting a fund. And I see a lot of young people you know, go out, they've got the dream, they've got the passion. And by the way, we're nine years into a bull market, so they've got the numbers. In fact, the more reckless you have been, the less, the bigger an idiot you've been, the more risk you've taken, the more Bitcoin you've speculated in over the past nine years, the more money you've made. So we're, we're, we're in a world of bull market geniuses. Um, young people who didn't l- live through 08 and 09, the only thing they know is that every, every stupid stock they bought's gone up and they've been rewarded for absolutely reckless and idiotic behavior. And you know why I know this? Because not only am I observing it in my students and reading the paper, but I was one of these guys in 1996, 97, <laughs> 98, uh, right before I started my fund. I was, it was the tail end of a 17 year bull market that had started in 1982. And it reached an unbelievable blow off in 1999 when the NASDAQ went up, you know, by 85% or something. It was one of the great bubbles in history. And I was riding that. And I thought I was God's gift to investing. And I bought AOL. You know, probably the greatest trade in my life was uh, taking my wife's little IRA at her law firm that had $20,000 in it. I bought AOL in 1998. And a year later, it was $120,000. I made six <laughs> times my money in a year. 
Um, and if that didn't convince me, you know, combined with going to Harvard and Harvard Business School, which, of course, fills you with hubris and arrogance and overconfidence in general, and then to be to obviously be God's gift to stock picking, because look at my AOL stock. So I ran out and launched my own fund and I had absolutely no business doing so. And by all rights, I should have blown sky high. And the vast majority of people who do something rash and foolish like me do get blown sky high. Um and uh, so, so the message to my invest, uh, the message to the young people is, 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 is exactly what I've just said right here, which is, do not confuse brains with a bull market, um, and do not go out and uh, run out and try and start your own fund if you do not have the the experience and and, and the skill set. Um, you know, uh, go work for somebody else if you're passionate about investing. If you're already in the business, you know. Find great people to work for and to mentor you um, and learn the business from inside because nobody is teaching this. We are the only people on earth who are teaching um, hedge fund entrepreneurship and how to start your own fund and um, and and all, all the elements of this, right? And so the reality, though, is, is the only way to learn it is, is to go work for somebody else in the industry. It's very much an apprenticeship-based industry and business. Um, and you need to go be an apprentice and, uh, you know, uh, put your ego aside for a while and go learn, um, go learn for, for a bunch of years. That's the way most successful entrepreneurs um, uh, become successful is, is they put in their time. They put in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you know, really developing experience and expertise and relationships. And by the way, building a bank account and having the um, having the financial wherewithal to quit your job and to go out because because this is what I am describing seems very obvious, but it is not what I did. And I see so many young guys um, early in their careers and they're really passionate and they do just what I did, but they didn't get soup. They don't get super lucky like I got. And maybe they didn't go to Harvard Business School like I did, which really helped. Uh, that opened a lot of doors and provided me some of my initial investors. And maybe they don't have the same writing skills that I have because my writing, picking up a writing gig at The Motley Fool and, and just being a very good writer was absolutely instrumental. So I had, you know, I was very lucky, but I also had some things really going for me. And if somebody else uh, goes out, so they give up their job, they raise a couple million bucks from friends and family. And uh, then they go out there on their own and you can do that very low cost, right? So maybe you're not burning a lot of money, but then the vast, vast, vast majority of people who do this never break through $10 million. That seems to be a kind of glass ceiling almost. Uh -huh. And if you, if you don't have at least $10 million, you're, you're stuck. You know, high net worth people aren't going to look at you. Certainly no institutional folks are going to look at you. And you really don't have a viable business. A $5 million hedge fund is not a viable business. You're, you're, you're not making any money and you're just bleeding. But I see, I see people, I see some of my students who for five years, 10 years of the most productive years of their careers, of their lives, are sitting there bleeding. And it's a total calamity. You know, they, they have no income, put strains on their marriage. If they're married, uh, often often these are young people who aren't even yet married, but it, it, it is a five to 10 year calamity in their uh, professional careers when what they should be doing is if they're talented and smart uh, enough to start their own business, they should be talented and smart enough to find a job at a good shop and learn, earn a salary, uh, cover your cover your expenses 
and only go out and pursue your entrepreneurial dream when you have at least a 35% chance of success, not a 5% chance of success. And when you can afford uh, to, to go pursue that dream. Right. So what's the benefit? There are a lot of drawbacks. You mentioned, you know, strains on marriages and all, all this other stuff. And when I read these stories about these managers having such a tough time personally, you know, including yourself, you seem fine. But, you know, some of these articles make it seem like this is a really it can be really, really tough. Why? If you have skill, you can make a lot of money and you can do very well. What's What's the appeal? Is it the prestige? Is it the just sort of infinite possibilities of wealth? What What's the motivation for, what would be your motivation for managing other people's money again? Yeah. So I, if, if I understand your question, you're basically saying given all of the downsides and the very low chance of success, why do so yeah, many people do this? Yeah, it sounds unappealing. So what, why, why do so would many you people do, do this? Exactly. And I think the answer is, is in part, is people wildly overestimate their chances of success. Any entrepreneur, you know, you survey, you know, restaurants, at least at least if you're going in the, in the money management business, you're going into a business that has extremely attractive economic characteristics. It costs almost nothing to get into the business. You don't need to buy any land or plant or equipment or anything like that, right? You know, 40,000 right. bucks and you're, you're, you're running a hedge fund requires no regulatory approvals, nothing, right? And right. other people put up all the money. If you lose it, that's their money. If you do well, though, you get 20% of the ups. Well, that's a pretty attractive economic deal, right? So even if you have a low chance of success, the upside scenario is so vast that, you know, it's not irrational to pursue a lottery ticket. But then, of course, you factor in the vast majority of people who do this are highly educated, have been very successful in their lives. Uh, they've gone to top schools. They've gotten good grades. They've been successful in their first job or two. So they're filled with overconfidence, and they think they're they're they have the skill set to do it successfully. So they're 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 irrational. It's very rational thinking about those economic characteristics and what the upside is. That's all rational. But they irrationally overestimate their chances of success. And partly, you know, even people who are rational about their chances of success are like, you know what, this is just what I'm passionate about and I'm going to give it a shot. And if um, I'm going to give it a shot for three years and if it doesn't work out, I can always go back and get a job. And that was sort of my sense. Now, I had a couple things going for me, though, is that I had a wife who had graduated from Harvard Law School a couple years earlier and she had a good job at a top law firm in New York. So her income was enough to support the family. We had one two-year-old daughter at the time. It also, um, we lived in her grandparents' apartment. We had the best kind of rent control, family. Um, <laughs> her grandparents had moved to Florida. And so we were living in the apartment and just paying a small maintenance and no rent, right? So we had, uh, we had an extremely low cost of living. I had spent my first five years after Harvard Business School working with Michael Porter starting a nonprofit called the Initiative for Competitive Inner City. But the point there is, is that I had not been earning big money working at McKinsey or something like that. I'd been earning 75 grand a year. I was the I earned less money in the five years upon graduating from Harvard Business School in 1994 before I started my fund. I earned less money than all 800 of my classmates. I went back for my fifth reunion and they did a survey of how much money have you made? Of course, that's on the Harvard Business School uh, reunion survey. And they put up a, a, a bell curve. And, you know, some people had made a ton of money and I was the left hand tail. I was the data point on the left hand 
part of that bell curve. So we had not gotten the golden handcuffs. All of those factors gave me, it was a, it was a very good time for me. I was five years out of Harvard Business School. I had no experience in the industry and never should have done it. But given that those factors, I was a pretty well-connected person. I knew quite a few wealthy people who were willing to give me some money to get started. So I built, you know, I got up to about $4 million at the end of year one. Um, I had a Harvard uh, undergrad, Harvard Business School resume, which always helps open some doors and gives you some credibility, right? Um, I had uh, a wife uh, earning enough money to support us, extremely low cost structure in my business and in my life. So I, I wasn't completely insane. Um, in going and pursuing this dream. And I figured I'd give it a few years. And if it didn't work, you know, BCG, I had worked for Boston Consulting Group a couple years before business school. You know, I could always go earn earn a nice living as a consultant, uh, though, though that is certainly isn't what I wanted to do. You know, I always had a fallback option, right? So I wasn't going to destroy my career. So, you know, those are, these are all the factors that any young person needs to think about. But, and, and, and it isn't always completely irrational for a young person to go hang out their shingle and give it a shot. But I can also tell you it's a lot harder today than it was 20 years ago. Hedge funds today, particularly if you're looking to start a hedge fund, the money management in general business in general is very crowded. Active money managers in general are particularly out of favor after 10 years of a bull market where index funds have dominated. Um, and in particular, high fee uh, funds, you know, hedge funds are absolute dog meat these days because they've offered the worst of both worlds, high fees and poor performance. So that was not the case 20 years ago when I was getting into this business where hedge funds were new and exciting and money was really flowing into the sector. So it's, it's uh, you know, my words, uh, I think the re response I get from, from our, my students is, is one of they're sort of sobered and they are grateful that I'm giving them this advice before they quit their job and pursue, you know, be like the, you know, in Aesop's fable, the dog who's got a bone in his mouth who then you know gives it up and lunges for that 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 uh, bigger bone in of the dog in the water, but it turns out it was never there, right? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm I'm saving them from themselves in many ways, and uh, and I'm um, you know it makes me feel good to do that when I uh, you know uh, at the very maybe I can save them from a bad decision about giving up a job and pursuing their entrepreneurial dream when they are not suited for it and never will be is answer one. Or maybe they just need to work another two, three, four, five years and develop the skills and then they'll be ready. Or number three, if they've already made the jump or are determined to do so, at least I can help them uh, identify and understand, you know, all of the areas where they're going to need to execute and make good decisions. Um, because a lot of these things like, you know, I just remember when I started up my fund, I, did, I didn't even know what a prime broker was, right? I just, yeah, Bill yeah. Ackman introduced me to somebody or somehow I stumbled into B of A securities, don't ask me how. And I had no idea how to negotiate a prime brokerage agreement, for example. You know, so this is the kind of thing we're trying to teach these young entrepreneurial folks um, about all the things they need to understand and think about and make good decisions about. Uh, because unless you've worked at a fund, you know, nobody teaches this. Right. I'd like to ask two more questions sure. if you have time. Okay. First one is your experience is kind of in this concentrated long, short value strategy. 
one criticism of that strategy that especially the kind of active quant crowd has is that it's discretionary and the portfolio manager can be the enemy of success based on cognitive biases and behavioral finance. And you mentioned that as one of your courses. What do you teach your students? How do you teach them to monitor their own thinking, especially in light of your own experience where you mentioned scarring and anchoring on the crash in 2008 as holding you back? What's your, what's your curriculum like for managing your own psychology as an investor? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask because we literally just taught it for two and a half hours this morning. And that's, you know, that's it's and that's about how long the module is. We have an exercise that we have our students do answering 17 different questions. And then then we go through that and we show our students that they are irrational. You know, everybody, it's, you know, the vast majority of people like, oh, yeah, I know all those other people are irrational, but I'm a purely rational, you know, calculating machine, you know, when I come uh, approach investing. And that's total bullshit. Every human being, Warren (laughs) Buffett himself, has been highly irrational and anchored uh, and uh, commitment bias and so forth. He's acknowledged it. You know, he, he, for example, he talks about buying Walmart, you know, 20 years ago. He was, this was probably multiple splits ago, but I think he talked about, he was buying Walmart at 23 bucks. And obviously he was buying it because it was worth a lot more than $23, you know, $50, let's say, right? Um, and of course, given how the stock is done over the, that time period, he was right. It was worth a fortune. And then he said the stock moved up to 23 and an eighth because, um, you know, stocks back then weren't traded by the penny. They were traded by eights. And he stopped buying. And he's like, that was insane, right? Uh, but he anchored on the initial price and he liked buying it at 23 and he wasn't, but he was only able to buy a little bit. And then the stock moved up a bunch. What, what should he have kept doing? He should have kept buying like crazy and he didn't. So the point here is, is that you just have to, so we start by demonstrating to our students that they and all of us have all sorts of biases and emotions and overconfidence and commitment bias, et cetera, not just when it comes to investing, but in every aspect of our lives. I mean, there's so many funny statistics about human beings overconfidence. 19% of people when surveyed think that they are in the top 1% of US households by wealth. 82% of people think they are in the top 30% of drivers. You know, the, the list goes on and on. The vast majority of entrepreneurs, when asked if they're starting a restaurant, what, what percentage of restaurants do you think are likely to succeed? And most people correctly say, you know, 20%, right? Restaurants are a horrible business. The vast majority of them fail, right? But then when they're asked, what percentage chance do you think you have of being successful in your restaurant? And they say 75% or 90%, right? So the, we have a whole module going through the major, and there are dozens and dozens of these uh, behavioral finance traps, right? I've, I've only mentioned a half dozen here. We go through sort of the highlight, and then we focus on the biggest, most important ones that we have seen that affect you most as an investor. So for example, overconfidence is the granddaddy of them all. And human beings in general are overconfident. But in particular, people who go into the money management business um, and to be investors tend to be the most overconfident people uh, of them all, right? I mean, almost it's almost definitionally. Uh, if you think about it, the very act of buying a stock 
is an act of arrogance because you believe that you have figured something out that all the other millions of investors in the world haven't figured out and you're right and all of them are wrong, right? You're betting by definition any stock purchase or or short. Any investment you make is is you're betting that you're right and the crowd is wrong. That is an act of arrogance, right? So how does overconfidence manifest itself? Um, how does it blow people up? And uh, number one, it causes you to go outside your circle of competence and you invest in situations where your overconfidence leads you to believe that you understand what's going on, the industry dynamics, what's happening in the company. If it's a bank in Kazakhstan, you know, that you think you know something about what's going on in Kazakhstan and what the government could do, you know, et cetera, leads you outside your circle of competence. Number two, it leads you to use leverage. And uh, because look, if, if, I'm, if I'm making all this money investing 100% of my capital and my prime broker is willing to lend me another 100%, you know, I can make twice as much money by being two to one levered, right? It leads you to oversize individual positions. I've done a ton of work on this particular stock. I'm convinced it, it's it's going to go up and your overconfidence leads you to ignore the things that could go wrong. And therefore, instead of sizing it appropriately, maybe a, a 5% position, you instead size it at 20% and that will blow you up. And then it will lead you, by the way, when you're wrong on something, to refuse to admit a mistake and to double down and to make a bad problem worse by buying more of a losing stock on the way down. And when I say losing stock, it may well be the right decision if you're right on a stock to buy more when the market gives you a better price on it. For example, one of my great investments of my early career was McDonald's. I didn't nail it at the bottom when it went from 44 to 12. I was in three months too early at 16, and I had to suffer a 25% decline over the next three months with more months of negative same store sales. Jim Cramer on national television saying, this is a direct quote, I still remember it, McDonald's stock is unownable. Right. So I had to fight through that and have the courage and the and to put aside the emotions of losing money and so forth and buy more at 12. And I rode that thing, you know, up to into the 60s over the next few years. So I'm but but my point, though, is, is if you have overconfidence and it puts it leads you to put up blinders and you're dead wrong on a stock, you know, think the, the incredible and brilliant investors, a half dozen of them all got blown up on Valiant right? Because of failing to see that you've just made a mistake and your ego and your overconfidence um, lead you to not only fail to acknowledge the mistake and get out, but, but in many cases to make the problem worse and pour good money after bad. That's where you can really get blown up. So these are, this is just one example of one, albeit the, 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 probably the single biggest behavioral trap that we investors fall into is overconfidence. And all of the various ways that that can manifest itself. One other way I should mention overconfidence leads people to overtrade their portfolio. Every study ever done shows that the less trading you do, the better your returns over time. But overconfidence leads to frenetic trading uh, at its extreme. So you can just see one, one behavioral finance issue can blow you up in five or six different ways. And so this is what we, we go through, uh, as we teach this, you know, showing the major and, and there, there's so many of them. It's all, um, the, we, we just try and do an overview in two and a half hours, let's say, and share real world examples of cases where 
are where we fell into behavioral finance traps ourselves and, and, and really lost a lot of money, but also cases where we were able to you know, uh, think logically despite all the emotions uh, that were swirling and make good investment decisions. So that's what we do in general. Everything we teach is case study based, based on our own 20 years of, of experience. And we don't just teach, you know, all the, the situations where we were heroic, all of our success stories. We try and teach just as many stories of mistakes and failures partly because that's critical to learning and partly because nobody else teaches that. Like there are a million case studies of, you know, every hedge fund guy is willing to talk about his successes. All, nobody teaches their failures and their mistakes, but for young people to really learn and be successful, they need to understand not just the smart things that they need to do, but they need to understand the landmines uh, to, the, that can blow them up. Got it. Okay. Last question. Which is the better business opportunity for you today? Is it case learning or would it be managing outside money, uh, reopening up a shop? It's an interesting question. The money management business is the, is the world's greatest business other than maybe Google and Facebook. Um, <laughs> but it's also a super competitive, uh, tough business. And if you can't raise money, uh, you don't, you don't have a business, right? So I'm, I'm definitely exploring getting back into money management and maybe I, I don't have to do either or I can do both. Um, I can tell you uh -huh. the process of preparing teaching materials, going back through my entire investing career, looking at virtually every stock I've ever owned, sold. What were my successes? What were my mistakes? Uh, both as an investor and as an entrepreneur, because in order to teach something well, you really have to know it well. Um, and being, um, you know, uh, exiting the business, closing my fund, getting rid of that dark cloud that was just polluting my mind and weighing on me, you know, like feeling like year after year, I was letting my investors down. It was, it's really enabled me to look back at my, um, and I believe today I am a much better investor than I was a year ago because I've taken a year to clear my mind. And also, you know, as, as I teach and students ask questions and they push back um, and I prepare case studies and I walk through, um, I just did a case study this week. And in fact, if you just Google on Yahoo Finance, I'm um, sorry to mention a competitor of yours, but that's where I happen to publish hey, it. Hey, yeah, watch out there. Whitney. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's where I happen to publish it. But if you just Google uh, well, Whitney Tilson Lessons from Amazon, I owned Amazon.com back in 1999, back when it was one of the high-flying bubble stocks and I was a bull market genius. And I went back and I found emails between me and two, Herb Greenberg, who's a, who's a friend and a writer, and Chris Stavrou, who's a hedge fund manager. And so I just added a new case study to my teaching materials and I published it uh, publicly about, you know, what are some of the lessons about Amazon.com? And one of the big lessons is, by the way, is, is of course, I was right on Amazon. It did become one of the world's great companies. And I, I wrote to her back then that, you know, I think this company has, has is incredibly unique and exciting, has incredible potential. But you know what? The stock went down by 90% when the bubble burst. And so my real regret though is, is that uh, after the bubble burst, I was so busy congratulating myself on having sold the stock in the nick of time and having predicted that the internet bubble was a bubble and would burst, that I didn't go back and look amidst the carnage and go find the incredible stocks that were available, that were trading at cash in some cases. 
Amazon, by the way, turned operating cash flow positive in 2001 when the stock was down at you know $10. In other words, uh, I, I correctly recognized that Amazon was an insanely great company. I've been a loyal user of it all these years. And I correctly saw, though, that it was caught up in a stock market bubble. I sold the stock. So I played that part beautifully, but nothing had changed um, in the sense that I still thought it was a great company. It, by the way, had turned profitable on an operating income basis anyway, but I didn't go back and do my work and recognize this, hey, you know, I can buy this stock back at a 90% discount to the price at which I was enthusiastically owning it two years earlier. So that's the you know that's the that's the kind of uh case studies and, and lessons that we try and teach and and now having you know so so um oh, that's a a module or one of the techniques that any successful investor should have in their toolkit should be bottom fishing amidst bombed out sectors where stocks are down by at least 90% if not 95 or 99% and um, and looking for the occasional gem amidst the rubble. That was something I did not do well in my career, but as part of developing teaching materials to give my students as robust an investment toolkit as I can, that's now a module that we teach. Another module that, I, that I've been uh, just developing is investing in bankrupt securities. One of my most successful investments of all time was general growth properties in bankruptcy. When Bill Ackman pitched it at the Irisone conference in May of 09, the stock was at a buck 24 and it later went to 20 bucks. You know, developing that toolkit. If you want to talk about stocks that are hated and out of favor, look for companies that are in bankruptcy and the vast majority of those stocks go to zero. But the occasional ones like General Growth Properties or U-Haul, for example, was another one. Um, the parent company was called Americo, you know, turned out to be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 baggers uh, if, you, if you bought them uh, the equity in bankruptcy. So uh, a lot of lessons. Um, you want me to pivot to just some of the lessons on the short side and talk about our conference? Yeah, yeah. And the conference, that's December 3rd. Yeah, right? coming up in, okay. in uh, um, uh, four weeks from yesterday. So it's really coming up. We did our first one in May. And I'm, I, I, uh, I was a short seller for about 15 of my 18 and three quarter years. And by and large, my advice to most people is, is don't do it. And if I were to ever start managing money again, um, I would not uh, do uh, any short selling. And that's despite the fact that I had some amazing epic uh, calls. Um, I'm probably best known for identifying the, uh, the lumber liquidator story that they were selling formaldehyde tainted uh, laminate flooring to their customers. I brought the story to 60 Minutes and I ended up on 60 Minutes looking like a hero and made a fortune on that short, um, you know, from 115 to bottomed at eight. I nailed the housing bubble and got short the whole housing sector and again got on 60 Minutes uh, back in uh, 2008 um, as a result of that. But I'll tell you, over my 15 years uh, of short selling, um, most of the period, other than 0809, it was mostly a bull market. And when you're uh, short selling uh, in a bull market, it's like swimming upstream. It's exhausting and ultimately fruitless, generally. And so net-net, uh, I lost a lot of money on the short side, cumulatively. Um, and it sucked up huge amounts of time um, and energy, which could have been better allocated to finding the next great long idea. 
Um, and it sort of messes, messed with my brain. I think it made me think uh, more short term. It made me more skeptical of the bull market than I should have been. By Almost by definition, short selling is a more uh, trading oriented um, uh, form of investing. You can't just sit there and buy it and forget it like you can on the long side. So you might ask, well, if short selling is so horrible and you wouldn't do it yourself anymore, Whitney, why do you teach it? And why do, why on earth would you have a conference celebrating it? And the answer is, is a couple reasons. One is, is shorting does make sense for some people. If you're going to run a hedge fund and charge hedge fund fees, you probably need to do something on the short side or or just practically from a business perspective, people aren't going to pay you hedge fund fees, right? Um, secondly, developing um, an understanding of shorting, uh, having that tool in your toolkit, even if you never use it, I think is very valuable. Um, having understanding that if you're looking at a stock on the long side, and it has anything more than a 3 or 5% short interest, you better figure out what the short interest is and what the short thesis is because it's probably a value trap. Short sellers are pretty darn smart and companies with high short interest studies have shown tend to do very poorly. Um, short sellers have to be very smart to survive, much smarter than long investors in general. You have to do much more in-depth research to survive on the short side. Um, so there are a lot of good reasons why we teach shorting and why um, some people actually should engage in it to at least some degree. But as a one-person operation, it, it, it's very difficult. And I found it just wasn't suited for me. But that doesn't mean it isn't right for other people. Um, and then um, I, the other reason, in particular, why we have a, short, a conference dedicated solely to short sellers, where we're inviting 20 of the, the smartest short sellers I know to come pitch their best short ideas is that I think it's incredibly healthy for our markets that, you know, you've got um, management teams pumping their stocks nonstop. Obviously, the Wall Street analysts are doing nothing but cheerlead their their clients. And so you have a real market inefficiency here where there's so much uh, promotion um, and pumping stocks up. And there's almost nobody who's willing to say that the emperor has no clothes. I think it was incredibly healthy that I and a handful of other short sellers were shouting from the rooftops about the housing bubble. Um, you know, we were ultimately unsuccessful in getting uh, the government to do anything to rein it in before it was too late. But um, having people, having canaries in the coal mine, having boys who are willing to say the emperor has no clothes, you know, uh, that old fable is incredibly healthy. And I'm, I'm really glad to see that it's that the world has changed in a way that makes it there are far more people today who are willing to speak out publicly about stocks that they think are overvalued, about companies that they think are promotions or even frauds. So, you know, Gabriel Grego, who runs a small fund, he's a basically a one-man operation. You know, he came to our first shorting conference on May 3rd, and he pitched uh, a company called Foley Foley, which uh, many women have heard of because they sell handbags and so forth to women. And the company claimed to have a billion foreign revenues. It had a billion plus uh, market cap traded on the Athens Stock Exchange, but it was a global fashion company. And Gabriel looked at their website. They claimed to have 700 retail stores, mostly in Japan and China. And he actually went out and did the research and hired some people and used Google, Google Earth and Google Maps and discovered that the company was a total fraud. Um, not a total fraud, but that the vast majority of their revenues simply didn't exist, that they claimed, uh, I think he concluded of their 750 stores, that they actually had, you know, 300 or something like that. 
So the vast majority of their business was just fictional. Within two days, the stock was down 60, 70% after his presentation. And the Greek equivalent of the SEC uh, halted trading of the stock. I mean, effectively, the company is bankrupt. The stock never traded again within two weeks after his presentation. So, you know, Gabriel has identified another fraud of a more mainstream company, says, you know, is very difficult for anyone in our audience to put on a short on the Athens Stock Exchange for Foley Foley. But he's going to be back on December 3rd with his next great short idea that he says is just as big a fraud, but it's more actionable. So, you know, that's the, you know, those are the kind of speakers that we're attracting. And a lot of these are sort of not well-known people. You know, if you go down and look at the list of speakers, most people won't recognize most of the names, but trust me, these are super smart folks who are often speaking, who generally never speak publicly about their short ideas. And they're doing so maybe as a favor to me in part. And so it's anyone who's, even if you're not a short seller, um, and but I would encourage you to try and learn about it, to have respect for short sellers, to develop that kind of mentality, to look for bombs on balance sheets, to look for excessive promotions, if only to know what to avoid on the long side and not get trapped uh, in value traps. I mean, how, how many of the people who got blown up in Valiant wish they'd listened to the short sellers there, right? And so, um, so come to our conference, and and I think you'll learn a lot, and uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun hearing uh, hearing these uh, short pitches. Yeah, I was at the one in May, and I heard that presentation. It was really exciting. Daniel and I, the hosts of Behind the Idea, will be there uh, this December third, and uh, I agree with Whitney that it's a great educational opportunity. Potentially, some news will be made there. So we're we're excited to be participants and uh, we look forward to it as well. Great. I'm glad uh, glad you're glad uh, to hear you enjoyed it. Um, I loved it. I, I, I was in the conference business for 10 years, did 20 conferences, just mostly on long ideas through my old business, the Value Investing Congress. Um, I had more fun, learned more um, at our shorting conference than any of any of my uh, regular conferences. Shorting is just so interesting. It's so contrarian. The The level of research people do is so in-depth. It's, uh, it's really a treat. Yeah. Well, Whitney, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Great. I appreciate it. And by the way, if I can just uh, mention anyone who wants to follow up on any of our programs or the Shorting Conference webinars, you know, we, we teach uh, both in person and via webinar. Um, just go to caselearning.com, uh, K-A-S-E, caselearning.com, and uh, for more information. Great. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this special Behind the Idea. We're going to be covering the Case Learning Short Selling Conference, which means we'll be reviewing ideas presented, and hopefully we'll get to do some interviews with the fund managers who are presenting at the conference. Stay tuned for that in December. And remember that our Amazon mini-series rolls on next week. We have Azlan Demodorin joining us to talk about the company. Really excited to have him back on the podcast. Subscribe to us in all the usual places and leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts so we can do a better job with this. This has been a Seeking Out production. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Behind the Edge.